This morning we'll continue with our series in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles with you and you'd like to follow along, our passage this morning will be Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. This is the seventh of seven letters to the churches. This is the final letter, the letter of the church in Laodicea. Let's read together, or I'll read, you, you can listen or follow along. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The word of the Lord. A few years back, a friend of mine named Reed asked me to pace him uh, for the Arkansas Traveler. Now, for those of you who are not super familiar with ultra running, Pacing means to actually run with someone for part of the race. The Arkansas Traveler is a 100-mile foot race. And what Reed was asking me to do was to run with him for 20 miles of that, specifically the section between mile 60 and 80. Well, I agreed to this, and I came to, to the aid station where he was supposed to arrive at mile 60. Now, this was out in the backwoods. You can only get to it through forest service roads. And I waited, and I waited some time. Finally, Reed arrived at the aid station, and he did not look good. Uh, he looked like he'd been running for about 60 miles. <laughs> so we sat Reed down, and, and uh, we tried to get some hydration, nutrition into him, and he took it down, but then, then he couldn't hold it down. And as I looked at Reed, and Reed looked at me, we both knew that his ability to finish that race was going to be dependent more on the strength of his stomach than on the strength of his legs. As a long-distance runner, you get the chance to, um, to uh, ingest lots of lukewarm liquids. And in my book, the only thing worse than lukewarm water is lukewarm Gatorade. And I would also say that... Um, an uh, aid station uh, for runners is not the place to go for fine dining, especially not if it's in the backwoods. Whatever started out hot cools down. Whatever started out cold uh, warms up. And everything is the same tepid temperature. The reason I bring up this story is that the point of things being lukewarm, lukewarm to the point that you can't even hold them down, is that they're useless. Hot water is good for some things, cold water is good for other things, but tepid water that you can't even hold down is useless. And when Jesus accuses the church in Laodicea of being lukewarm, what he's saying is that 
you are so lacking in spiritual fervor that you are to the point of spiritual uselessness. I can't even hold you down. What about them was, was lukewarm? Well, Jesus starts his letter to them by saying, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Now, their intentions may have been no, no, noble, and, um, and their words may have been passionate, but it was really their works, the things they did that reflected the condition of their heart and showed their work, lukewarmness towards the Lord. Why were they lukewarm? I'm sure there are probably all sorts of reasons why someone might be spiritually tepid, but in their case, there were two things in particular, their materialism and their self-sufficiency. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, material wealth can be a blessing, but excess wealth can also be a curse. If we think about this, you know, we kind of know it. We see all sorts of examples of people who have accumulated wealth uh, to their own harm. Yet it's very difficult for us as 21st century Americans to really fathom that there is such thing as too much wealth. When my wife and I were medical missionaries in Kenya, uh, we arrived in 1999, there were very few people in our community who were overweight or obese. Uh, the relative lack of nutrition and the amount of physical activity people had to do every day just to survive and walk around made it difficult for most to maintain a healthy weight, let alone get fat. But as time went on, I did see some overweight or even obese patients, particularly those coming from the city, from Nairobi. And uh, many of them would have conditions associated with obesity, like diabetes or high blood pressure. And I would counsel them about, uh, about nutrition and about physical exercise and, and that they actually needed to lose some weight. And they would look at me like I was crazy because in their culture, there was no such thing as being overweight. Fat was associated with blessing and success, a sign of success. And you could be too small, but there was no category for being too fat. And I think for us here in America, we're kind of like that. You know, we know the dangers of being too poor, but we don't really have an upper end for how much is, is, is too wealthy. But Excess wealth can be like spiritual obesity. Now, um, if I eat too much or eat more than I need to maintain my basic needs, um, I can go exercise it off. And that's actually not a bad thing. It actually makes me stronger. Uh, in the same way, if the Lord blesses us with an abundance beyond what we need to sustain our lives, we can also burn it off, so to speak, by sharing it or giving it away. And therefore, we can absorb the blessing of material wealth uh, without letting it become toxic to us spiritually. And there are times when we find that the Lord is blessing us well beyond our means, and it may be a sign that maybe we need to spend more of our time and energy uh, working on things that are further the, further the kingdom of God that don't necessarily... Uh, involve compensation, at least not financially. The biggest danger of materialism or wealth, uh, at least to the Laodiceans, was that it led them to self-sufficiency. 
in Proverbs 30, it says, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Having too little or having too much can be spiritually hazardous. In this case, the Laodiceans had too much. It led them to a sense of self-sufficiency. I have prospered and I need nothing. The person who truly feels like they need nothing um, becomes disconnected from God and also from other people because it's our interdependence that connects us uh, both with our Lord and also with one another. Uh, so, uh, in addition to the spiritual uh, self-sufficiency that the, Laodice, the, the Laodiceans had, um, they also uh, were afflicted by uh, spiritual blindness. Uh, although they were rich materially, they were poor spiritually. Uh, and they were, Jesus said, uh, <clears throat> uh, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Not only were they poor and naked spiritually, but they were also blind. They didn't understand or see their condition. My father used to say to me often, the greatest human capacity is the capacity for self-deception. That's kind of a cynical view of humanity, but there's a certain amount of truth to that. Whether we call it self-deception or denial or lack of self-awareness, this is a real problem for us spiritually, no matter where we are. It's a bit like intoxication. The person who's intoxicated, everyone else knows that their life is a mess, except them. They can't see it. They think they're doing just fine. And we oftentimes are that way as well. In this case, the church in Laodicea, they thought they were rich uh, when they were poor. For about 10 years, I was involved in the recovery ministry at uh, St. Andrew's Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. That ministry is called Growing in Grace, and it's an outreach to those who are struggling with alcohol or drugs. During that time, I became pretty familiar with the 12 steps. And I think uh, probably the two hardest steps are steps four and five. People cruise through steps one through three, and then they kind of hit a wall. Step four is made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And step five is admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. The principle here is that true confession requires seeing ourselves as we truly are. Uh, we have a collective confession, a prayer of confession, every Sunday here in church, and we, of course, encourage private, personal confession. But for us to truly confess, we need to first see ourselves as we are. And that's what these steps, 12, 4, and 5, are, are pushing us to. And that's what the church in Laodicea needed. They needed to be able to see themselves for who they were, see that they were, instead of being rich, were wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, the remedy for this that Jesus uh, gives to them is to turn to him. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This is uh, reminiscent of Isaiah's words in chapter 55. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Oftentimes, we're going everywhere trying to uh, get our needs met, uh, trying to find what's missing in our lives. Uh, but Jesus says, I counsel you, come to me. Come to me. Uh, Jesus is our sole source provider for what we need spiritually. Why does he say, buy from me, though? Why doesn't he just give it to us for free? In a sense, he does. We really don't have anything that, that Jesus needs, and there's nothing that uh, we can or need to give in exchange for his grace and his love, which he offers to us freely. But there is a sense in which uh, there is a price to spiritual vitality. And to fully experience the love of Christ involves some cost. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, Jesus says. Uh, to experience the spiritual vitality that Jesus wants to give us uh, requires accepting his reproof and his discipline. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. Now, I know the topic of discipline can bring up different images to different people. Uh, what's meant here is not punishment. Um, it's not purgatory. Uh, Jesus' intentions in his reproof and his discipline are motivated by his love for us, his desire for us to be spiritually alive. And uh, there are at least three purposes of true discipline, the kind of discipline that Jesus calls us to, uh, to counteract the tendency to lukewarmness in our lives. The first is stripping the way, away the, thin, the things that hold us down, that encumber us. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. There's a lot of things in our lives that can tether us down and slow us down. Um, I'm a long-distance runner, and I've learned. I started out carrying a lot of stuff, and uh, now I'm down to just the bare minimum because everything you carry slows you down a bit. And there's a lot of things in our lives that can slow us down in our spiritual progress. So one of the purposes of Jesus' discipline uh, is to strip away the things that encumber us. The second is training in righteousness. Hebrews 12, 11, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Jesus wants us to learn to do what is right and what is good. And, and that process can sometimes be painful. But then we reap the rewards uh, later on. And the third purpose that I wanted to highlight is teaching us to value what has value. There is a tendency for us to put our value in things that actually have little value. Uh, the writer of Hebrews brings the, up the example of Esau, Jacob's brother, he came back from a hunt and was so hungry that he exchanged his birthright for a single meal. 
he failed to value what had great value and instead exchanged it for something of little value. And that's another purpose of the discipline that Jesus uh, calls us to. Well, how can we pay for what Jesus counsels us to buy? What is the cost? In a sense, the cost is, is everything. Uh, Jesus says, so be zealous and repent. Uh, zeal, uh, spiritual zeal is really uh, the antidote for lukewarmness. That means putting everything on the table. Uh, don't leave anything out. Uh, repent is to stop doing what we're doing and to start doing what's right. Jesus calls us to be zealous and to repent, to shake us out of our spiritual lukewarmness. Well, will it be worth it? I guess that's the question. Uh, when we think about buying something, um, is what I get going to be uh, worth what I pay for it? The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says in Matthew 13, is like a hidden treasure in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Uh, Jim Elliott uh, puts it this way, uh, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. There's this mystical spiritual alchemy that God calls us to where we are able to transform these things in, in this life, our time and our earthly treasures, things that we can't possibly hang on to, and by investing them in his kingdom, transform them into treasures for eternity that we will never lose. Um, this is what we're called to in, in this story of the, uh, of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. What is the hidden treasure? The hidden treasure is the kingdom of heaven, or uh, to push it even further, the king of heaven. It's Jesus Christ himself. In verse 14 of this passage, the very first verse, refers to Jesus as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Amen is a, is a Hebrew word. We use it all the time. Maybe you don't think about it that much. It's sort of like the period at the end of a, of a prayer. Um, what it means, though, is true, faithful, and certain. Those certainly describe Jesus. We use that term to express our affirmation of something. Amen. Can I get an amen to that? Amen? amen? Okay, there. Even Anglicans can say amen once in a while. Um, it's uh, to affirm something or to express its, its certainty or our agreement with it. And in this sense, um, uh, Jesus is the amen to all the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. He's the amen to the Levitical priesthood and the entire sacrificial system. He's the amen to the Davidic kingdom and to the law itself. Jesus is the final amen to God's redemptive purposes in the universe. And it is uh, this uh, amen, this faithful witness, faithful and true witness, who is, is knocking at our door. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. Now, this is a somewhat familiar passage, uh, but through our cultural lens, um, 
it can be a little confusing because this would never actually happen. I mean, people don't come over uninvited, do they? And if they do, they're certainly going to text or call ahead, right? But that's not true in a lot of traditional cultures. Uh, when uh, our family lived in Kenya, people would oftentimes stop by unannounced and usually during dinner time. Now, uh, the culturally acceptable thing and right thing to do was to invite them in and join us for dinner, which we did uh, uh, most of the time at least. Uh, and it was, uh, in some sense, the worst possible time to come for dinner. We both were coming back from the hospital and trying to get the kids taken care of and the meal prepared, etc. cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, Kim was usually, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to feed a couple extra mouths when people came by. But from another perspective, it was exactly the perfect time because they knew we would be home and they knew that that was the chance to come and get to know us and us to get to know them, to fellowship with them. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's coming at mealtime. He's knocking on the door. Now, through our cultural lens, we, we tend to focus on this decision. Do you let them in or not let them in? And, you know, I think you probably, have, if you're like me, you've heard whole sermons talk uh, about that. Um, I think uh, to those in, in, in more traditional cultures and, and probably to the Laodiceans who first received this letter, uh, that was probably not the main point because only the most horrible of hosts would leave someone standing at the door. If they came, you're going to let them in and you're going to invite them to the table. It just wasn't really a question. The point of this is that Jesus has come and he's come at mealtime because he wants to be with us. He wants to sit down and have a meal with us. He wants to share in our lives, uh, he, to experientially let us get to know him. We, uh, uh, we symbolically reenact this meal at communion, or the, the sacrament of the Eucharist, where we share a meal, a literal meal with our Lord. And our fellowship in the Eucharist is so intense that he not only serves as the host, but offers his own body as our spiritual food. But Jesus, King Jesus, is not content just to come into our house and sit with us and share a meal. Uh, he wants us to come up on his throne with him. In the next verse, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He's saying, come up, join me on my throne, and when I come again, we're going to reign together. This is an invitation that is unparalleled. A Kenyan friend of mine once told me a story about uh, President Jomo Kenyatta, the first president of Kenya. Uh, president Kenyatta was driving in a rural area of, uh, of, of Kenya, and his vehicle got stuck in the mud. Now, I have experienced the mud of Kenya personally, and I know that when a dirt road gets saturated with rain there, it can suck your car in up to the chassis within minutes. And I promise you, you're not going to get out without a lot of help. And that's the situation that President Kenyatta found himself in. Well, some of the men from the nearby village came over, and after hours of working, they finally were able to get his car extracted from the mud. 
And President Kenyatta was so thankful, so appreciative of what they did, he said, he said, ask me anything and I'll give it to you. So the men of the village got together and they thought about it. They came back and they said, we'd like a goat. We'd like a goat that we can roast. The president said, sure, you want a goat? You got a goat. And he went on his way. These were men with no vision or no imagination. They could have asked for anything. They could have asked for a school or a hospital or a paved road. And all they could come up with was to ask for a roast goat. But we're like that sometimes, aren't we? Jesus has invite us, invited us into an intimate relationship, not only that, but to reign with him. And sometimes all we can think to ask of life is a roast goat. This letter finishes with the same words as all the other uh, six letters before. He who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Um, this message of reproof and discipline is not, it's not for everyone. Um, I think some of us already know uh, deeply uh, that we are poor, naked, and spiritually blind. Um, uh, Others are not ready to, to receive that message. Um, but for those who do have ears to hear, who the Spirit has given uh, ears to listen, this is an invitation to self-examination, to self-understanding, to intimacy with Christ, and restoration to spiritual usefulness. May the Lord in His grace give us all ears to hear. Amen.